new to the idea maybe of celebrating the season of Advent as a precursor to Christmas. Some of the things we talked about may have seemed a little unfamiliar. But as we've gone along, I hope that you've noticed that each of the Sundays of Advent has a theme. The, the first, uh, we talked about hope. Last week about promise. And then this week, as you heard Mickey and the, and the kids read together, the focus is on joy. And that's actually the, the official name of the day on the church calendar. It is, it is Joy Sunday. Uh, and it's a day that is intentionally inserted into the liturgy. Uh, a day unlike either of the first two that stands out. It's kind of like that rose-colored candle does in the lineup of the royal blue ones, to help us lift our eyes, if only briefly, out of the grave and somber circumstances that surround us, as seems like, on a daily basis, and catch a glimpse of the goodness of our God in His sovereign grace worked out in the joyful birth of His beloved Son. So that's the theme we're going to be considering today as we continue our, our look at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians where he directs our attention to the concept of rejoicing and more specifically to the object of that joy, namely Jesus Christ. And so I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, we're circling the end here of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're still in chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading to you verses 12 to 18. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 18. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. All right, so we ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amen. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be God. Gracious Father, we thank you that we've just been fed out of your living word. We ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to teach us, to fill us, to enlighten us, and let us see Jesus in it, because we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. So, you know, the idea, when I was thinking of this, I was thinking, you know, the idea of Making lists kind of goes hand in hand with the season of Christmas, doesn't it? Whether it's it's grocery lists for all the holiday dinners, mailing lists for all those cards and party invitations, shopping lists so all the gifts are bought on time, or of course there's the proverbial naughty and nice one, right? But lists are a huge part of this time of year. And if you were listening, the Apostle Paul just gave us one more because Paul closes his epistle to the Thessalonians with a Christian to-do list to aid believers in their daily living and in their relating to one another. And so he says here, number one on the list, respect the leadership of the church in verses 12 and 13. Uh, and number two, be at peace with one another. So he says, cut, cut out the arguing and the bickering and the gossiping and the fault-finding. And, and just as a kind of kind of side note, this isn't really the point of the lesson, but as a side note, one of the very best ways you can respect your pastors and elders is by not carrying them a bunch of petty tales and complaints about one another so that they can focus on helping people in genuine need. So if you've got a run-of-the-mill problem with someone, be man or woman enough to go to them in person and resolve it in person and work it out as fellow believers, uh, or, or just let it go. 
that I, I can promise you there's no need to share insignificant issues and details with anyone publicly or privately. Uh, which really is that, that actually truth that feeds directly into the next item on the list. Treat each other with kindness and patience. That's verse 15. And then the big three to round them out. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. And so these last three verses, Paul gives us three things we are to be doing, he says, at all times. Which, if we're honest, can sound like a problem, because I don't know about you, but I have trouble sometimes doing two things at once. Let alone three things simultaneously and continuously to move. Uh, but don't worry. You don't have to have physical dexterity or coordination to follow these commands. You just need a deep reliance on the Holy Spirit. But having said that, those three items are presented as commands to obey and marching orders to follow. They are not suggestions. And so when verse 17 says, without amplification or equivocation, rejoice always, he means it. Which is what I want us to focus on today. And I think maybe one of the first things we need to realize here is even though the power for rejoicing is from the Holy Spirit, at the same time, it's not a passive thing. It's cooperative. It requires participation. And it does so because it's part of our sanctification. And, and I think we can kind of piece that truth nugget together for a couple reasons. The first of which is by its context. Because if you remember, this passage uh, follows hard on the heels of Paul writing in the prior chapter in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, where he said, For this is the will of God, your what? Your sanctification. So I think we can know what he's thinking about when he's writing this. But I think it's also obvious from the logic of the list and from our own personal experience that remembering to be thankful and persevering in prayer are not things that just run on autopilot. So guess what? Neither does rejoicing. Yes, the blessings of prayer and of thankfulness and joy are initiated and assisted by the Holy Spirit. And thank God they are. But at the same time, they don't arrive gift wrapped from heaven as a fait accompli. To paraphrase John Piper on this, he says, Piper says, Paul's point is the sovereignty of God in our salvation and sanctification is not permission for passivity, but a reason to hope. He says the sovereignty of God makes us hopeful that these things are possible, but not passive, as if no effort were necessary. I like that. Another commentator said of this, the context of Christian joy is exertion, and its nature is agonistic. And we get that word agonistic from the idea of the, you know, the extremely physical sporting events that were originally participated in by the ancient Greeks in the Olympics. Meaning that in the context of Christian joy is exertion. It's not necessarily just a laid-back, stress-free activity. Christian joy is something that demands something from you. That there, there's a friction that, that pushes against you and you, you push back against it. It's, it's something you've got to wrestle with, I guess we could say. Meaning, in other words, it's not something you're going to find in the bottom of the football. It's not something you're going to achieve after downing one more beer or be able to cook up in a meth lab. Joy is not something you're going to find on a therapist's couch or by watching Dr. Phil. You can't conjure it up by a day at the spa or an extra week's vacation or a boost in your paycheck. But it's found instead most freely and perhaps paradoxically in the midst of tumult. 
Because, brothers and sisters, true Christian joy actually comes amidst the trials of life. Because it's the trials of life we face that take us farther and farther down the road to sanctification. Where the only genuine joy there is, is finally to be found. And I think we see that reality really clearly in the example of other faithful believers who have come before us. Like, for instance, the lineup from Hebrews chapter 11, if you remember. Where, you know, if you, if you flip there real quickly to Hebrews chapter 11 in Scripture, we have this great list just chuck full of all of these Old Testament saints who had run their race in times past. And, and, and we're to look to them as an example and as inspiration for living out joyfully faithful, godly lives. Like great names stretching all the way back from Abel to, to Noah to Abraham along with, with Isaac and Jacob. And then there's, there's Sarah to Joseph Moses and Rahab. And then Paul says, he picks up in, in Hebrews 11, verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and, and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They, they went about in Skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom this world is not worthy. Wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Says God had promised something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, so in other words, because of all of that. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Yeah. Joy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see the example? I get chills when I read that. You see the example there? We're, we're given this huge list of saints, this, this great cloud of witnesses, and, and we're, we're kind of aware of their presence in the stadium of heaven. But they aren't interested in us. They're, they're not watching us. They're looking to Jesus. Just like they did their whole lives long. And serving not as eyewitnesses to the ups and downs of the lives of the living like celestial voyeurs or, or cosmic armchair quarterbacks. But they're witnesses for the prosecution in heaven. So that when we arrive there someday, they can stand ready to give testimony that if they could look joyfully ahead to the person and the work of the Messiah, even amidst the difficulties they faced, and the limited knowledge that they had, and the partial revelation they saw, how dare we not? If they can do it, how dare we not? 
look to Christ and live joyfully content, having had the great benefit of hindsight in the life and ministry of Christ and in the testimony of his perfect word tucked neatly between the covers of the book. A book so readily available that we will have no excuse for not knowing its contents and passing on. And church, that book, this book says Jesus is the model. And he's the one we're to be looking to to really imitate if we hope to have him joy. We need to look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, church, all of our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith ran their race. And our elder brother Jesus ran his race, and he and they did it in a particular way. They endured their crosses, and they rejected the shame. Because they knew joy was the reward. And, and not just in the sweet by and by, but in the here and now. What a, what a great example of that. For context, just look at the Last Supper. Right before the agony of Gethsemane. Account we find in Luke 22. The Bible says, When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took the cup. And we had given thanks. He said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. And he took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so you see, here's, here's Jesus on, on the night of his greatest trial, his, his most intense agony, his greatest betrayal, and yet desiring to enjoy a meal with friends and thanking God for the provision and for the privilege and eagerly sharing the gospel with those that he loved. You think that took some effort on his part? You bet it did. And you may say, well, pastor, I'm not Jesus. Well, you're right, you're not. And so even more, that's why when the difficulties of life start to flow your way, we need to feel his presence and refuse to get sucked under with him. And we need to purpose like him not to go quietly, but instead we look to Jesus and go to his word and we ask the Holy Spirit to aid us in the work, the hard work of rejoicing, even when we don't feel like it. Maybe especially when we don't feel like it. But you know, having said that, neither is our faith a Pollyanna rose-colored glasses existence. The Christian life is not all just irrepressible optimism and finding good in everything. And the Bible says in Romans that all things work together for good, but it doesn't try to pull the wool over our eyes that all things are good. Because I don't have to tell you they aren't. And in the same way, neither is our Christian faith masochistic. We, we don't look at some new pain coming around the corner and think, okay, oh boy, bring it on. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> no. It's not like that. I like what Christian author and Pastor Doug Wilson said this. He said, and again, this is a paraphrase. He said, if you, if you have a random group of people line up, believers and unbelievers alike, and, and you stick pins in them indiscriminately, you don't come to find out that the believers are the ones who feel the pain and have to like it. And the unbelievers are the ones that don't. He says, because the problem of pain and the call to rejoicing are not standalone things. They are a part of a greater whole. Just go back to the example of Jesus who, who ran the race and, 
and endured the cross and despised the shame and asked, how was he able to do that? And the answer is not just automatically because he was Jesus. Now, the Bible is very clear that our Lord laid aside his heavenly privileges in some regard, saying, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. No, Jesus endured what he did because the pain and the suffering was not the end goal. The goal was the joy that was set before him in the good news of the gospel. And all the pain and the negative stuff that he went through was just a part of the process in the greater message his life was leading up to. That it was just a part of a bigger story. That there was a, a trajectory, there was, there was a narrative arc. And he understood that everything that happened to or around him happened to further that end result. As I think of it like this, who, who likes to read novels? Any readers? Right? For those of you who like to read novels, do you judge the whole novel paragraph by paragraph, or do you judge it by the conclusion you get to on the last page? Right? And of course, the answer has to be you judge it by the last page, right? And you have to view your life that same way. Is every single paragraph you've been written into by God going to look like your best life now? Not even close. But that's because you're nowhere near the finish line. And it's the end page that counts. And better yet, the epilogue. The one that finds you living happily forever in the kingdom of Christ and in the joy and rejoicing that awaits us there. So, brothers and sisters, resist the urge to give up and instead look at Jesus. And there is no better time to do that than right now on this third Sunday of Advent. The Sunday set aside by our church fathers of old to point us to the whole reason for joy right in the middle of difficult circumstances. And to that child in the manger of whom the angel said, this holy child shall be called the Son of God. And not only the Son of God, but the Good Shepherd, friend of sinners, seed of the woman, slayer of dragons, physical and spiritual. Because church, as I said, our joy is not just for some time after we die or for the kingdom come. It is for here and now, and we need to start living. And wrestling through whether we feel like it or not. And so here's, here's kind of the thought and application I want to leave you with this morning. There are two essential things I think you need to know about the world as a follower of Christ if you're going to have joy. Uh, and first of all, it's the world's filled with tribulation. But secondly, and more importantly, it is conquered tribulation. Because the child in the manger is now the Christ on his throne. Said Christ to before he ascended to the heights of heaven, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. So, what do you have to worry about? Since we know that whether we live or whether we die, whether we are asleep or awake, we are his. The tribulations of this life are inevitable, but they do not have the last word, and they are not the end of the story. Because our Lord is the author, and he has written the last page. And there's not one molecule in the universe over which he does not rule. And so that includes all of the blessings and burdens of your private life. And so rejoice in that truth. And in the ultimate gift of joy that comes to us in the simplest and humblest of wrappings, the baby in the manger, the creator of the universe in swaddling clothes. Have you received him yet? If you haven't, I say to you today in his name, repent and believe the gospel. Don't wait. Today is the day to be saved. 
But if you have, if you have Christ, then church, you have everything, whether you have anything else or not. And so rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks and go out as we prepare to wrestle with the realities of life in the truths of this word and in the word made flesh. For unto you is, is born, not again in the city of David, but, but I pray in your hearts a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Amen. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Amen. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you were willing to send your one and only son to be the babe in the manger. But Father, you didn't leave him there. He lived a life of obedience. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised again in glory. And now he is seated on the throne of heaven and ruling and reigning, not just over this church or over individual lives, but over this whole cosmos. And so we praise you, Father, that from that exalted throne we could lift up to you our praise this morning. And we ask, Father, that you would watch over us this week, that you would grant us the joy of his presence, you would grant us boldness in speaking his word, and you would draw each of us, Father, closer together, closer to you in his name.